This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, podcast fans, what's going on? How you doing? Hope all's well. Welcome to episode number 112 of the Moranalytics podcast. Today is. Friday, April 19th, 2019. I got a good show for you today. And I know I say that all the time. It's easy to say that. I got a good show for you today. Well, I'm telling you, I got a good show for you today. I have, in my opinion, one of the best out there today. Matt Bowen, writer, analyst for ESPN. He's my guest. And I'm telling you, this is a great interview. You hear the term football guy get tossed around all the time. I'll tell you what, if Matt Bowen is not a football guy, then I don't know who is. Seriously. We talk extensively about his life, his career, his post-football playing career, his broadcasting career, writing career, everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. We go all the way back to his childhood growing up near Chicago, a Bears fan. That 85 Bears team inspired him to start playing football. We talk about his high school career where he was a star quarterback getting recruited by many colleges, including a couple Big Ten schools. He ends up going to Iowa, choosing them over Northwestern, among other choices. Still a quarterback, even though he played defense at the time. Transitioned while in college to play in defense. Then we talk about the draft process, which I always find fascinating. And in his case, he wasn't a blue chip guy. He didn't know where he was going to go in the draft. He talks about that process working out bunch of things that go on stressful things during that draft journey and he would go on ultimately to be the sixth round pick of the St. Louis Rams number 198 overall and if you're thinking about the 2000 draft you know who was next and I asked him about it one pick after Matt Bowen Tom Brady he goes into New England Patriots I asked him what it's been like to have to hear that question probably a million times for him over the last 15 or so years and he gives a very honest, insightful answer about that. We talk about Matt's career. He played seven seven seasons with four teams, including the Buffalo Bills, by the way, in 2006. I talked to him about that season. He had a really good relationship with Dick Duran. He talks about that, some of his teammates. And then we transition into his post-football playing career. He went back to school. He got his master's degree in writing and publishing, wrote for several newspapers, helped start the National Football Post, And ultimately got a job where he is now today at ESPN. We talk about all that stuff, how he feels about working at ESPN, what it's like there, how long did it take him to get comfortable on camera, stuff like that. And then last but not least, 
We spend plenty of time talking about this NFL draft next week. I ask him about a handful of NFL draft prospects that might be a good fit for the Buffalo Bills, including a pair of tight ends from his alma mater, TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fant. We talk about them. We talk about a running back from Alabama that he thinks could be a good non-first round fit for the Buffalo Bills, a guy that they could get in the middle of the draft. And then we talk a little bit about the Bills themselves. I ask him about Josh Allen and how his feelings have changed between his rookie year going into his second year and what he thinks of the team after all the additions that they've been able to make during the offseason. We go for like literally over an hour. I didn't realize how long we were going because I was just fascinated by a lot of the stories that Matt was telling and the way he was telling them. Like I said, one of my favorite guests that I've ever had on this show, and I've been blessed to have, I think Matt's the fifth person I've had now on from ESPN. I've had Schefter on, I've had Josina Anderson on, I've had Mike Rodek on twice. I've had Olivia Harden on. And now, Matt, I'm telling you, Matt's a good interview, and you're going to like it. If you're a football fan, you're going to like it. And especially if you're a Buffalo Bills fan, you'll get something out of it. I promise you. And by the way, if that's not enough, I also have my man Joe in the house. We're going to do another installment of The Running with Joe. We're going to discuss the Buffalo Bills schedule, how we feel about it. Here's a spoiler alert. Joe's pretty indifferent about it. I love the Buffalo Bills schedule, the way it played out. I don't think it could have worked out any better for Buffalo. So we discussed that. We talk a little WWE and a little Game of Thrones as well. Really good packed episode. And when I say packed, I mean packed. This might be the longest podcast that I've ever done. So I'm not going to waste any more time here at the top. I'm going to get right into things. Here's my interview with ESPN's Matt Bowen, followed by another installment of The Running With Joe. Okay, my guest today played in the NFL for seven seasons, including one in Buffalo. He's now an NFL writer and analyst at ESPN. And by the way, also a high school football coach on a team that's now won three straight state titles. I'm talking about Matt Bowen. What's going on, Matt? How you doing? Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me on, Patrick. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm a big fan of you and the work that you do at ESPN. I remember the year that you played with the Buffalo Bills. I kind of want to go in the same format that I do with most of the athlete and sports media guests that I have on this podcast. And in this case, you represent both of them. Kind of want to go back to the beginning and give fans an opportunity to get to know a little bit more about you personally, as opposed to just the work that you do and your career that you have, which we're certainly going to talk about both. But anyway, you grew up in a suburb of Chicago. What was it like for you growing up near the Windy City I know as a youth that you played not just football, but also baseball and basketball as well. I did. I mean, I was a three-sport athlete growing up and, and, and throughout high school. But I grew up in a town called Glen Ellen, Illinois. It's a western suburb of Chicago. Um, my mom and dad still live in the same house, right down the street from Sunset Pool, uh, oh, wow. to be honest, uh, uh, where I grew up. And I, I love my childhood. I did. I went to Catholic school called St. Petronell, played basketball there. So my best friend still that I talked to today, I played basketball with in fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade at St. We called St. Pets. Um, yeah, played baseball growing up as well, and then really got into football after the Bears won the Super Bowl in '85. You know, that's my childhood. You know, in relationship to sports, it's the '85 Bears, it's MJ and the Bulls, it's bad Cubs baseball outside of '84 <laughs> uh, when they won the pennant. Okay, so that that was my sports childhood. Um, but I loved I loved growing up there. 
I still live in the area. My wife and I, our family, we still live in the area. My parents still live, like I said, still live in the same house. My brother and sister live down in the city now. So I wouldn't trade it for anything. And you know, that's why I started playing football, really, was because of those 85 Bears. And, you know, Jim McMahon, Walter Payton, the Fridge, Richard Dent, and Mike Singletary, Otis Wilson. I mean, those are my guys growing up, right? That, that's who I wanted to be growing up. Many people consider that perhaps the greatest football team of all time. I certainly do. Yeah, I would agree with you. In terms of defensive football, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the greatest thing about that football team is kind of how they play defensively schematically. And there's still defensive coaches, whether at the high school level, college, the pro level, who still look at those, those Bears teams and, and try to simulate what they did from a schematical approach. Um, yeah, so that, that football team. And the greatest thing about it is when you look back and you go back and you, you look at YouTube clips or highlights of the, those football teams, how physical and nasty they were on defense, man. The way they hit, man. I mean, you talk about a team that intimidated people, that, that's the ultimate benchmark right there. You want to talk about a team that's physical, tough, fast as the football on the defensive side of the ball? Throw in some old tape with the 85 Bears. You don't see stuff like that. Yeah, they, they were probably the only football team I could ever remember watching growing up where I didn't want them to have the ball. I was more excited about them playing defense than when they had the football. It was crazy how good they were. Now, you played defense. Eventually, you were a defensive back, or you became a defensive back, I should say. But actually, in high school, you were actually an all-state quarterback at Glenbard West High School. You were originally recruited as a quarterback. Was quarterback a position that you enjoyed playing when you were younger? Uh, it, it was. I mean, that's what I was. And uh, I started in fourth grade or fourth or fifth grade, Glen Ellen Golden Eagles, playing quarterback. We had three plays. We ran the T formation. So we had like a power play, a sweep, and then one right. They snapped the ball to me and I ran with it. Mm. I don't think we threw the ball all season, to be honest. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but yeah, I, I played in uh, at Glenbard West High School under head coach Jim Covert, um, one of the best coaches I ever had. And Still talk to Coach Cover quite a bit, um, but I was a quarterback in high school. Played defensive back as well. Played some corner and safety at, at Glenbard, uh, and we ran the beer. Uh, you know, this is nineteen early nineties. You know, we ran double tight, one wide receiver, two backs. We ran the beer, we ran power, and the beer is you know beer option. Uh, had some drop back passing, but not a ton. And I was recruited as a quarterback, and that's what that's what I wanted to be. I'll be honest, I wanted to be a quarterback. Did you? Why did you choose Iowa for college? After your recruitment, what other schools did you consider going to as well? Uh, well, my recruitment was different because, again, this is the 90s. So there were some teams that ran, you know, straight option. The Air Force Academy, University of Hawaii, right? Tulane. You know, Tulane recruited me too because they were option football teams. And that's what you had in the early mid-90s. Uh, in terms of the Big Ten, I really, for me, it came down to Northwestern and, and Iowa. And I chose Iowa because the minute I stepped on campus, I said, this is the place I want to be. It felt the most comfortable. Uh, my recruiting visit with the teammates, future teammates at Iowa, the recruiting class we were putting together, and to play for Hayden Pride. Um, and that's still something that I talk about people all the time. You know, Coach Fry just turned 90 years old. And I think he's one of the greatest coaches ever. And what he did building the program at Iowa, what he did before he got to Iowa, he's not talked about enough. He's, in my opinion, he's not. And I understand Coach Fry didn't win a national championship, but he took Iowa to three Rose Bowls. And when I met Coach Fry for the first time, uh, you know, and listened to him talk about Iowa football, for me, it just – the best way to say it is there was a feeling of comfort, uh, no hesitation in making that decision. 
and knowing that when I got on campus, I wanted to be a Hawkeye and I wanted to be like those older guys, the juniors and the seniors, the guys who have been in the program and just the type of character they have, the type of people they are. And I'll tell you this about Iowa football because Iowa recruits from everywhere. You know, the state of Iowa does, is not loaded with four and five star talent. We know that. So they recruit from all over the country. My recruiting class, you'd have a guy who grew up on a hog farm in South Dakota and a guy who grew up in Dallas and a guy like me from the western suburbs and a guy from Jersey, a guy from Pennsylvania. But we're all similar in terms of our character, in terms of our accountability, and in terms of how we wanted to play within that program. I'll tell you this real quick. When I was in the Big Ten Championship a couple of years back against Michigan State, you know, Hawkeye fans took over that town. I mean, you, you have a football game and beer, Iowa fans are going to come. All right. That's just how it is right. in Iowa. And we were together. There was guys from the 80s, Coach Fry's first teams, the 90s, guys from Coach Ferentz. And we're all the same. No matter if you played in 82 or you played in 2012, we're all very similar. So that, to me, um, was a huge selling point uh, to go to Iowa. And, and there's no disrespect to Northwestern. You know, Gary Barnett recruited me. And Coach Barnett said, well, we're going to go to the Rose Bowl. I said, okay, sure, sure you are. And they did. Nice. <laughs> they did in 1995, my freshman year. They yeah. did go to the Rose Bowl. So give it to Coach Barnett. He had some great teams in Northwestern. And that's, I mean, it's Northwestern University, man. It's one of the you know, best, best schools in America. And they played good football there. But I wanted to go to Iowa because that fit. I mean, and I tell the players I coach now, it's hard to really describe it. You just know it. You know it as a player. You know it as a student. And you know it as a person. Now, when you first went to Iowa, when you first stepped on campus, were you expecting to play quarterback? Sure, I wanted to, you know, and I wanted to be the next Chuck Long. If people don't know who Chuck Long is, uh, Chuck Long almost won the Heisman in '86. Yeah, the yeah. Race at the time, he lost to Bo Jackson. Right. Um, you know, was won the Maxwell Award. I think was the best. He was the best quarterback in the country for Coach Fry. Took him to Rose Bowl, and he grew up here. You know, I said he grew up in Glenon, Wheaton, Illinois, right next door. That's where Chuck Long was. He went to Wheaton, and Chuck was my defense. Was eventually my defensive back coach at Iowa. He, coach Fry hired him and the coaching staff, and I played my freshman year at Iowa. So I was a redshirt. You know, I was a redshirt freshman. Wasn't nearly developed body-wise, physicality-wise to play Big Ten football coming straight out of high school, and I was a quarterback. So I ran the scout team. And Coach Fry was old school. That red jersey didn't mean anything. <laughs> it didn't mean anything. I got thrown on the ground so much. Right. <laughs> I, got th- I got thrown on the ground going back to the huddle one time. You know, so that's just how it was. It was a different style of football back then. And I took a beating, but it was great for me. It was great for my development. Uh, it, uh, it was it was a positive thing. It, 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 sometimes as an athlete, the worst situation turns out to be the best. So no one going out to practice. That every time I threw the ball, every time I ran the ball, simulating an option team, I was going to get my butt kicked. That's okay. It turned out all right. <laughs> when did you move over full-time to defensive back at Iowa? How did that happen? Uh, it happened after my freshman year. So going into spring ball, um, we played in the Sun Bowl that year against Washington, Lauren Malloy's team at Washington. And uh, we beat Washington in the Sun Bowl. So it was my, my, you know, my redshirt freshman year, or true freshman year. I didn't play in that game, obviously. But afterwards, I met with Coach Long, and Coach Long said this to me. I always remember this. He said, do you want to play on Sunday? Obviously, meeting in the NFL. I said, yeah. He said, it's not going to happen at quarterback. He said, I'm going to be honest with you. It's not going to happen there. Why don't you come play defensive back? And then I met with Coach Fry. I met with Don Patterson, who was our offensive coordinator, helped recruit me. Coach Elliott, who was our defensive coordinator, also recruited me. And we decided, you know, player and staff that for me was the move over 
and play defensive back. So those first couple, you know, practices of spring ball were a little different. Now I'm moving backwards, you know. Right. Now I'm, I'm not going to play in a huddle. Now I'm not studying progressions and, and you know, throwing the football with accuracy, anticipation, something I really couldn't do anyway. So, uh, you know, I, when I would drop back in practice, and my first read wasn't open, I had to start running. Coach Fry was like, son, you can't do that. You can't do that up here. <laughs> you know, it's not high school anymore. You're not going to outrun everybody. So, uh, moved over to defense, and, you know, and then from there, you know, it's progression. You know, you play special teams and you get on the field and nickel and dime situations, and then you eventually earn your way to being a starter. But when I flipped over to defense, I, we had a bunch of NFL talent in the secondary at Iowa. I had Damian Robinson in front of me, who was uh, drafted by the New York Jets. Uh, Kerry Cooks, I think, was drafted by the Vikings. Eric Thigpen was drafted by the Falcons. So it was three safeties in front of me I had when I was a freshman that were NFL talent. So, you know, you got to wait your turn. You got to earn it. You got to earn it. So that's what I did. I had to go through progression of, one, getting stronger, um, and being able to play physically in the Big Ten. Again, this is the 90s. You still had some option. You still had safeties rolling down the box to take on pulling guards with 315 pounds. So, yeah, it gave me time to develop my body and then to play special teams. And I tell us all the time, I know the NFL wants to get rid of special teams, and I don't agree with it at all, uh, especially now as a high school coach. But special teams is the ultimate teaching tool in football, especially for a defensive player. You have to use your hands. You have to take angles to the ball. You have to tackle in the open field. You have to defeat blocks at the point of attack. You have to learn how to control your footwork, learn how to tackle. I mean, it's everything that is. So if you're not playing an offense or defense and you're a special teams guy, whether you're in high school, college or the pros, you're still getting better. Those reps are vital. And if you play four quarter football game, you're going to get 20 to 30 reps. if You play on all four core special teams. So that really helped me in my development as well was covering kicks against big 10 competition. Again, there was no rules. It was like the wild west. Right. There's no rules back then. You trap block, but someone put a helmet right in your ear hole. You know, so that was so beneficial for me as an athlete and to get tougher, stronger, faster, and to be able to use my hands in space was playing special teams. Well, Coach Fry said that you play on Sundays, you would have to play defense. You did. You did play on Sundays. What was the draft process like for you after college? You're a prospect, but you weren't a quote-unquote blue-chip prospect. You didn't know where you were going to go in the draft. Was it a stressful process for you, the time between – the end of your college career and the draft. Take fans a little bit through what that journey's like going from ending your college career to becoming an NFL draft pick. Well, okay. So I graduated in December of that year in 99. Uh, I got my degree in journalism in 99 and, you know, immediately started training. I, co- I went down to what's called EXOs now. It used to be called Athletes Performance. And I only went down for a couple of weeks because I love my strength coach at Iowa, Chris Doyle. So I came back and trained with Coach Doyle, but I went down with Mark Verstegen, who runs Exos now, which used to be called Athletes Performance. They didn't have the big facility. Again, this is 1999, 2000. So I went down there to train. There was a couple of football players, and Nomar Garcia-Para, Lou Merloni, A.J. Hinch. I believe A.J. Hinch was down there. So it was awesome. You know, one, to train with Nomar Garcia-Para at the time for me was super cool. Uh, but to learn some different techniques, and obviously you're starting to train for the combine immediately. That's your, your sole focus. Yes, you want to you add strength, your work on your explosive traits as an athlete, your functional strength in the weight room. All that stuff matters. But you're really training for the combine. So after I got back from Arizona, I was down there for a couple of weeks, um, and then I played in the Hula Bowl. Okay, so they don't have the Hula Bowl anymore. Um, 
You know, right. I wasn't selected to play, play in the Senior Bowl, um, so I chose the Hula Bowl. And I mean, why not? It's in Hawaii. So uh, we flew down to Hawaii. Um, Barry Alvarez was our head coach down there. And, you know, went through the scouting process of working out in front of scouts, getting height and weight, all your measurables down there, competing in practice and competing in the game. Um, but after that was all done, came back and trained in Iowa City with Coach Doyle, who's still the strength coach at Iowa 20 years later under Coach Ferentz. And it's just, you just wait. I mean, that's the toughest part is you wait. You train, you train, you train. Then you go to the combine, okay? And the combine is, I mean, nothing's really changed about the combine. It's a total grind. And I'm a big supporter of the combine. I really am. Because you're not going to run your best times. You're not. Because you're exhausted. (laughs) You're exhausted. You're up all night in meetings with coaches, doing interviews, doing testing throughout the day, written tests, physical tests. Um, And then you have to test – you know, athletically in your final day there, when I got done testing at the combine, I felt like I played a game. Huh. I was exhausted, tired, sore. My legs were killing me. Um, and then you come back and you run at your pro day and you do better times at your pro day. Uh, but back then, it, you know, in the combine, not the top guys didn't really run because it was in the old RCA dome. It was on AstroTurf. You ran on the sideline, not in the field. So it was a little spongy and bouncy at the start. Um, and the times weren't as great. The times now are much better. I think that's why you see more guys running out because you're on field turf. You put your cleats in the ground. You get a great start off, off you know, off the whistle there to go. Uh, more guys are doing it. But, you know, once you finish the combine, you, you, you get the times. Um, they are what they are. You try to prove on them at your pro day. And, again, just wait. I had a couple private workouts. Um, teams came in Iowa City to work me out. And then you just wait. And I'll tell you, on draft weekend, back then it was only two days, so Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. I didn't, ex- I didn't expect to go on day one. I mean, there's always some hope. I mean, you know, the last pick of the third round goes, you, you know, you're a little pissed off. Uh, but really, Sunday was, it was, was brutal. I'm not going to lie, it was brutal. Because I was honest with myself and my agent, Jack Beckton, who's out in La Jolla, California. Um, you know, Jack and I talked throughout the day and you know, I got calls in the fourth round from a couple of teams said they're going to pick me. And then the pick comes on TV and it's not, it's not my name. So I'm like, Oh man, this is just killing me. Uh, so I sat there in the fourth round, thought I would go sometime in the fourth. I felt that was fair fourth or early fifth. Those times passed. And then my agent called me in the sixth round. He said, we have to start preparing. This would be an undrafted free agent. Man, my heart just sank. Just saying, because then you start to think, okay, what, what didn't I do? What box didn't I check? And not play well enough against Michigan and Ohio State. You know, how's my film against Penn State? You know, the games that everyone's going to look at immediately first against your top competition. You know, so that that was tough. It was tough. And I remember I was at my parents' house in Glenall, which, you know, I said my parents live in the same house. And I didn't have a lot of people over. We, we don't have a huge family. So I had my aunt and uncle over and, you know, my parents, my brother and sister, and they were down in the kitchen. By the start of the sixth round, I went upstairs. My parents were and they have a TV up there. It's kind of washed by myself because, you know, it's tough. You have all these people watching you, waiting, hoping you're going to get drafted, and your name's not coming across the screen. So uh, I remember when I got a phone call, you know, middle of the sixth round, whatever that is, pick number 198, and it was from the St. Louis Rams. I said, Matt, we just drafted you. And then my name came across the, the screen, and then you could hear the kitchen erupt downstairs. So that was that was pretty cool. That's a moment I'll always remember. But, you know, just the fact that you get drafted, that gives you a shot, you know. It sure. gives you an opportunity. You're a drafted player. You're going to come into camp as a drafted player. That's going to get an opportunity. But still, you're talking fifth, sixth, seventh round, <laughs> there's no guarantees now. 
Yeah. And you're not walking in saying, I'm on, on, on this football team. No, not even close. That's just the beginning. I mean, when you get drafted, and I tell us my high school players, if you get a scholarship offer, that's great. That doesn't mean anything. I mean, that's just the start of the process. Now you have to work to earn that scholarship or in the pros to earn a roster spot. And even when you earn a roster spot as a six-round pick, you play poorly on special teams in weeks one and two, you might be gone in week three. They right. don't owe you anything. They don't owe you anything. So it's this constant battle of survival. And that's what I tell people. They say, oh, you played seven years in the league. I said, no, hold on. I survived seven years in the league. Hmm. You know, because that's the, type, that's the type of athlete I was. Sure. Like you said, it wasn't a, wasn't a blue chip prospect. It wasn't a pro bowl talent. I had to survive week to week until I was vested in the league. Um, so that's the approach I took going down to St. Louis. And I'll tell you, the first time I got there, man, I was a little starstruck. They put, I was number 27 with St. Louis Rams. Number 28 was Marshall Fox. So that's where my locker was. Oh, wow. And I don't think I said a word to Marshall for like the first month. I mean, I really did. I just kind of kept my head down, got to meetings early, uh, got to the weight room early, did everything that <clears throat> would check every box, uh, you know, of being professional, and just kept my head down. You got Kurt Warner down there, Tory Holt, Isaac Bruce, London Fletcher, Kevin Carter, um, you know, Devin Bush, Dre Bly. I mean, that, that, they're the Super Bowl champions. That's what they were. You know, I'm walking into the locker room with a bunch of guys who got a ring on their finger now for winning a title. So – uh, but that was that was a great thing for me because to be around so many guys that were so professional. Now, Kurt Warner is one of the most professional people I've met in my life. Mm-hmm. Okay, he just is. To be around him and to watch him, just how he studied, how he practiced. The same with Marshall. The way Marshall prepared, man, you can learn so much from watching Marshall Falk prepare for a football game and prepare for an offseason OTA. Everything mattered. Everything was professionally done. You can see that's why they were champions. So that, for me, was so beneficial. I had Kevin Carter on this podcast before. Great guy. Said a lot of the same things mm-hmm. about the, about that locker room. Now, you were drafted by the Rams, sixth round, 2000, pick overall, 198. Through no fault of your own, obviously, you were the last guy selected, and some people know this, before the Patriots would take Tom Brady exactly yeah. one pick after you. How many times through the years have you been asked about being the guy taking one pick before Tom Brady? I'm, I'm assuming that I'm not the first person that's ever brought that up. No. I get that asked a lot, all the time. I mean, all the time. I mean, that that's kind of my my draft story, right? Yeah. That's kind of it. You know, some people say, you were drafted one spot ahead of Brady. I said, yeah, the Rams made a mistake. <laughs> 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 what were they thinking? Uh, you know, it's interesting because I remember after I got drafted, you know, obviously when you're in the sixth round of the draft and you're watching on TV, they're not going pick by pick anymore. You know, right. they're, just throwing the, they're just throwing names up there. So, and threw the names of the other people selected. I said, okay, there's Tom Brady from Michigan. I played against Brady in college. He was at Michigan. They beat us 12 to 9 in Iowa City. I remember, like, I remember every single play of that game. He beat me on a slant route for a touchdown. Threw the ball to Ty Streets, who, you know, played a long time in the league, too. Wide receiver Ty Streets, who's from the south side of Chicago. And he beat me on a slant route. I'll never forget that. I took a terrible angle, opened my hips too early, and Streets beat me inside. And, you know, it was Tom Brady. He's not going to miss. He threw a perfect ball, the upfield shoulder. Couldn't make a play on it. That was the only touchdown in the game. We lost 12 to 9 in the rain. So, yeah. I mean, when I saw Tom's name, I was like, okay, this, you know, Tom Brady from Michigan. And little did I know he'd still be playing while we're doing this podcast. 19 years, years later. later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, so, yeah, I played, you know, I was lucky in college to play against, we played against Drew Brees. Man, I'll tell you what, those, those Purdue teams with Brees, oh my. Man, they would run you off the field. And they did. <laughs> they ran us off the field on Halloween in, in West Lafayette. But, 
yeah. So getting back to what you said, that you know, that's what people that's what people know when you know because even my players, you know, that I coach now, they've never seen me play. Why would they? I mean, they're, they're little kids, right? You know, just, you know so that's kind of my thing. You know, that's that's what people say about the draft. Is you were drafted one spot ahead of Brady? And I said, yeah. Now you played I in was. the you played in the NFL for seven years, four teams, including the Bills in two thousand six, which would be your last season in the league. Since this is primarily a Buffalo sports podcast, I wanted to ask you what you remember about your year in Buffalo and overall just living out your dream of making it to the NFL and being able to play for seven years in the greatest football league in the world. Well, my year in Buffalo was was special uh, for a couple of reasons. And obviously not what I did in the field because um, I, I, here's what happened. So I was a free agent. Uh, you know, I played – in St. Louis, Green Bay, and then after Green Bay, I signed a four-year deal with the Washington Redskins, and you know, I blew out a knee, and you know, that's, that's what happens when you're not on the field, you're not available. Um, availability is more important than anything in that league. So I didn't get, after my third year of the contract, they cut me in my fourth year, so I became a free agent. And had some interest out there, you know, I'm getting close to being 30 years old, but, you know, most of my interest was to play special teams and be a, you know, a role player in defense, whether it's a backup safety or a sub package safety, whatever it may be. Um, I remember taking my visit up to Buffalo. And one of the main reasons I wanted to go there was George Catavis was a defensive back coach. And George was my DB coach under Steve Spurrier in Washington. Bobby April, April was a special teams coach. I knew Bobby from my time in St. Louis. Bobby April was one of the best special teams coaches in the NFL ever. And I love playing for George. When I got up there on my visit and met Dick Duran, the head coach, I said, I want to go here. I mean, I, I think Dick, I think the world of Dick Duran. I do. I only played one year for him. But he's more than a coach to me. He's more than a coach. And when I got up to Buffalo, and that's – for me, playing in Green Bay, playing in Buffalo, those are my types of towns, man. They're, they're my types of towns. I'm, I'm a pretty simple guy. Yeah. Okay? I, I like to play football and drink beer. All right? So that was uh, – for me, it was great. And my wife was pregnant at the time with her first son. And my wife used to be a high school teacher. Um, she had a connection at Niagara University. So she got to go up to Niagara and be an adjunct professor, teach a couple classes throughout the season. So it was a perfect thing for both of us, the football aspect, um, the lifestyle aspect, uh, and for my wife to continue her career uh, you know, at Niagara University. And I loved everything about it. I remember the first time I met Jim Kelly. Uh, you know, Jim used to be around the facility, man. I thought it was one of the coolest things ever. Met Thurman Thomas, you know, met the greats. That, that, that stuff's important to me. The history of the league is very important to me. It's extremely important to me. Because I think as a player, you are playing for the guys that came before you. And the guys are going to come after you. But to respect the guys that came before you and what they did in the league. And to me, Jim Kelly's one of the all-time greats. Thurman Thomas one of the all-time greats. So to meet them, and then Coach Levy. You know, Marv Levy was involved in the process too you know he was the general manager at the time um for our football team so uh, we everything about it to me was a perfect spot um and that's just how i view it and i love training camp at, at, out in rochester you know being in the dorms and that's back when we had two of days you know yeah perry fuel was our, was our defensive coordinator we're playing you know we're playing lovey smith's defense which i fit into <clears throat> again you don't want me playing man to man against a slot receiver at that time, like an Antoine Randall. Oh, well, you're gonna you're gonna lose your job as coach. You, know? you don't want to do that with me. So <laughs> I can play cover two. I can play cover two. Play off the numbers and you know deep half, roll down, play curl zone and zone blitzes. So it was a perfect defense for me, and I thought I was playing really well. 
Uh, obviously, we drafted Dante Whitner out of Ohio State, and I knew that going in. Coach Ron told me they were going to look to draft the safety early, and I was fine with that because I knew where I was at that point in my career, really close to the end. So, you know, my, my, my goal was to come in there and compete for playing time at safety and start on all, all four core special teams and help that team get to the playoffs because we had talent. I'm with Willis McGahey at running back. And we had Fletcher, Takeo Spikes at linebacker. Uh, Nate Clements at corner. We had talent in that football team. Lee Evans at wide receiver. I mean, I'm sure younger fans don't study Lee Evans. Lee Evans is one of the smoothest wide receivers I ever played with in terms of his route running, his speed, his hands at the point of attack. So I thought we had a good football team. But during training camp, we were playing uh, the Carolina Panthers down in Carolina. I think, um, I think it was our first, second preseason game. I broke my leg right above my foot. So it wasn't a clean break all the way through. So they they didn't put me on IR. So that really kind of, that's what I'm looking for. That, you know, that really impacted my season with Buffalo, really impacted my season. So I didn't get back in the field like week eight or nine. It was down in Houston against the Texans. You know, and by that time, you're just playing special. Teams. And, and by that time, like I said, you're trying to survive the season, right? Right. You know, you're playing hurt. You know, it, you really, it, it really isn't healed yet, but you're still out there. And that was my decision to go out there because um, I had to get in the field. Yeah, you got to get, get back. You got to get feeling or else you're gone. Right. So I, I went back in the field and, and played the, you know, one of the final seven games, eight games, whatever it was. But the things Coach Ron did, my wife was pregnant and during the cold games that um, he would sit with Coach's wife up in the box. You know, just simple things like that. You, you know, just everything about it was so personal and so professional, in my opinion, the way everything was run. And I know that didn't turn out and the wins weren't there. And the NFL is the business of winning. I understand that. But I always remember this, and yeah, I haven't told the story to a lot of people, but when I got done playing, my, uh, we have four boys. My wife, Sean, and I, we have four boys. And my oldest son, Matthew, was born a week after the season. So season's done. We drive home, and, you know, and Matthew's born basically six days later. Um, so we had our exit meeting on Monday. And my oldest son, Matthew, is Down syndrome. And obviously we didn't know. And we didn't know until the third day in the hospital that he had Down syndrome. And it was very hard for me. Um, I wrote about this once. Uh, when Coach Parker retired from Iowa, my former defense coordinator, who had a son with Down syndrome, and it was really hard for me. I I didn't react very well. Um, I regret that. I always regret that in my life. And it was a challenging first time father. I'm scared to death. I don't know much about having a child with special needs, so that was very hard for me. And one of the first people I talked to was Coach Trump. and he's one of the first people to call. And I thought that was at the time. We think about pro football and just how cold it could be, how cutthroat it could be. Um, to get a call from your head coach, who's eventually going to cut you, because that's what Buffalo did, and they should have. I didn't play well enough. I was hurt. They should have cut me. Um, but to get a call from Coach Duran and to see how I'm doing was something I'll always remember, um, because not all pro coaches are like that. Yeah. So that was big for me. That was big. And that's why I look at Buffalo as being such a special place to me, just because the experience we had, again, we're only there for one season. Um, but my wife being able to teach and the connections she made from that university and the connections I made with that football team and, and to have special people around that will help you. And that's the great thing about sports. It's the great thing about football, that it's more than just what you do on Sundays. It's a lot more. And for me, that story means a lot because, man, I, w- I wasn't doing well. I was not doing well mentally uh, when Matthew was first born. So that helped me tremendously. Being an NFL player, and this is one of my favorite things about you, that's only a small part 
of your adult involvement with football. You you have a master's degree in writing and publishing. You've written for the Chicago Tribune, Pro Football Weekly, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Washington Times. You helped create the National Football Post. That's not even the entire list. We'll talk about ESPN in a minute. When do you remember writing becoming such a passion for you? In high school, I had an advanced composition class at Glenbard West. That's what it was. You know, I had a teacher I loved. And, you know, that's the power. I've told you all the time. Coaching football is no different than teaching in, teaching in English class. It's just a different subject. One's in the grass, one's in the classroom. Same thing. Right. The way you connect with people. I mean, it's all about relationships, right? So I had a teacher I loved, and uh, she got me hooked on writing in terms of the passion for it. And, look, I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I thought like I was going into calculus class and dominating. <laughs> I wasn't. So <laughs> I was getting by in those classes and saying, do I have to take this stuff in college? And, uh but writing, that was that was a passion for me. It always has been a passion for me. And I wasn't a good writer in high school. You think you are, but you're not. Right. And uh, that got me hooked on it. So when I went to Iowa, you know, I had a decision. Do I want to, you know, be a, you know, an English major or creative writing? The Writer's Workshop at the University of Iowa was outstanding. Outstanding. So I majored in journalism, but I took a bunch of classes in the creative, creative field, you know, short story, cycle, poetry. And that helped me tremendously as a writer. But really, when I got done playing, so after Matthew was born in January, you know, he just floats. You know, I got cut by the Bills. I got cut when I was at my grandma's house. Okay, I'll tell you a story real quick. The Coach Ron called me. I knew it was coming. I mean, I'm in the league seven years. I'm not, I'm not a fool. And Coach Ron called me. My grandma and my, aunt, my Uncle Frank was down there, my Aunt Kathy in Tampa, Florida, and my wife, uh, and Matthew, and Grandma had like this big dinner for a big dinner for grandma was go to Publix. And, uh, <laughs> she bought all this, she bought all this schnapps. <laughs> she thought Frankie and I love schnapps. And I'm like, I'm like, Frankie, I don't drink this stuff. He's like, I don't either. He's like, you better though. <laughs> he's like, he's like, grandma got it. So we're sitting there pounding schnapps at like three in the afternoon. I like a Tuesday and coach Ron called. So, um, after that, you just float, you know, I had opportunities. Yeah. Uh, I had opportunities. Now listen, these opportunities, are back, you know, when newspapers are popular, they, if you signed, they'd be behind like the high school box scores, like in fine print. You wouldn't even see them. They were small time, not much guaranteed money, but you know, to extend my career, you know, to play. And I, I had this discussion with my wife. I always remember it. Is another year worth it? Is another year worth it to take our son who's has special needs and has doctors all lined up in Chicago and, and take him to another city, take him away from family, which I really needed at the time. So, I felt that an eighth year wouldn't have done anything. I, for me, I, I just felt like it wouldn't have done anything in terms of furthering my career or furthering for me mentally what I have done as a football player. I was, you're never satisfied as an athlete. I understand that, but I felt at the time it was, it was the next step was to move on. But when you move, make that decision to move on, Patrick, you just float because now you're 31 years old and you don't know what you want to do. Yeah. You know, and you're so used to structure. I tell people all the time when Coach Gibbs and Joe Gibbs is one of the best, not one of the best coaches, best motivators ever. And when Coach Gibbs, he would hand us a schedule every day. It was down to the minute. You know, you're so used to structure. You're so used to an off season. This is when I start training. This is when I, you know, ramp up my training. This is when I scale back down, going into mini camp and OTAs. You're so used to having that structure. Now, now you don't have it. You do, you float a little bit. And that's what, so why some guys really struggle when they get done playing football. You just don't have that structure anymore. So my wife was huge 
and helping me get through that. And also recommending that I go to school. And I remember my wife said, why don't you go back to school? I said, you gotta be crazy. I don't want to go back to school. I'm 31 years old. I already have a degree. And she said, I think it'll be beneficial for you. I think it'll be competitive for you. So I applied to DePaul University of Chicago and got in the master's writing and publishing program. And it was super competitive. I remember going in there and those students didn't care that I played for the Buffalo Bills. (laughs) They didn't care at all. So, uh, you know, now I'm in a different environment in great professors, professors I still talk to all the time. Because that style of writing, Patrick, helped me so much. And now I'm back to the creative side. I'm taking stylistics, essay writing, rhetorical grammar, short story, poetry, nonfiction, fiction, magazine writing, all that stuff, you know, in the mid-2000s. And that helped me tremendously as a writer because I think having more of a conversational tone and being able to connect with people, but also being able to apply it to football. Look, if you write about cover two, that, I mean, that, that stuff can be pretty boring. Man. It just can't. Unless you're, unless you're speaking to coaches, right. right? Unless you're speaking to coaches, that stuff can be boring. And especially now that I write fantasy, you know, writing fantasy at ESPN, it's a different style of tone. You have to have a different voice when you write comparative to like doing the NFL matchup show. So that really helped me going back to school. And it kind of gave me a bridge of finding, you know, having time to find what I really wanted to do professionally post NFL but also having that competitive environment, just a different competitive environment and totally different arena, but it was competitive. And I loved it. I'm, I'm so grateful I went there. Just the people I met, obviously, number one, but also the experience of going back to school and working like that again and challenging myself again. How did the opportunity at ESPN come about for you? Well, it was kind of a winding path. Like you said, Chicago Tribune, when I was in Chicago, you know, I worked at 670 The Score, I worked at WGN, I worked at CSN Chicago, I worked for everybody. You know, just trying to get, you know, the old school term is trying to get clips, you know, the newspaper term, but, you know, trying to get exposure, trying to improve myself, getting reps, getting TV reps, which I was terrible at. So I needed to go on TV. We had the show called Chicago Tribune Live. We'd go on there and I'd have to talk about the Cubs, the Sox, the Bulls, the Blackhawks, University of Illinois, Notre Dame, and interview people live on TV, you know, you're interviewing Cubs players. That was good for me. Even when I was terrible at it, I know going back and look at that stuff wasn't very good, but. You know, you get reps doing that. And like you, you mentioned already, working with the National Football Post, having those guys started. And again, really, when you're in an upstart website, you're working like crazy. You know, mm-hmm. you're pushing content out like crazy. So that was, again, a good experience for me. And the Chicago Tribune was so beneficial. My editor was Mike Killams. And Mike was tough. I sent in a story, he sent it right back. said, not good enough. And he was tough. You know, working on deadline. Working with AP style. It helped me tremendously as a writer. And then I went to Bleach Report. I loved Bleach Report. I loved it, man. Uh, I loved the people there. Um, I loved the style of it, being more digital journalism at the time. Um, and after two years of uh, Bleach Report, um, I got hired by ESPN. And can't say enough good things about people at ESPN. How much have they helped me further myself um, in terms of writing, uh, different fields, getting into fantasy side of football, which I never had before but taking my knowledge of the game and applying it to fantasy. Um, and again, using that, those different styles. I wrote a, you know, a piece this past week about quarterback fits uh, for the 2019 draft class. That's a different style of writing that well, I'm going to write post-draft about fantasy football and how these rookie prospects fit with their new football team. So I always feel like I'm being challenged, like I'm being pushed. And that's how I was as an athlete. I wanted to be coached. I wanted to be coached hard because I needed to be, because I wasn't the best. And I'm not the best now. 
So I need to be pushed and challenged. I like that. Um, and I love that about my editors at ESPN. They're outstanding. Now you played football in front of 70, 80,000 people or more at Iowa and in the NFL. Being on TV, how long did it take you to get comfortable? I would imagine in some ways that might even be a, l- a little more overwhelming than playing football in front of all those people, at least until you got through the process of being more comfortable. You know, I see you on ESPN, you feel like a natural, you look like a natural now, but was there probably a time where you felt really, I don't know, maybe not uncomfortable, but just it, it took time to really adjust being on TV and being comfortable with being on TV. What's that process like? Uh, I, I remember one at ESPN when, I was, uh, this is, that'd be three or four years ago when the, when the combine was still like the media center for the combine was, was inside the dome. It wasn't really in the convention center yet. So it's really tight quarters of, you know, and the combine is such a big experience now from the media perspective that I had to do a live hit on sports center in the middle with all these people around me. <laughs> I was nervous. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, about being nervous. I, I mean, like you said, you know, you go on playing Monday Night Football against the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, that, that I was nervous for those too, but uh, that was extremely nervous, extremely nervous. And this year, we did the final NFL matchup show at the Super Bowl, and you know, my co-hosts are Sal Palantonio and Greg Cosell, and Trey Wingo hosted the Super Bowl because Sal does the Hall of Fame voting. And Greg told me, "Look, we're going to do it outside." I said, "Okay, you know, that's fine." When I got there, it's all those people. I was like, "We're doing it here. All these people are watching us." He said, yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay, let's go. Um, that was all, you know, that was huge for me. Doing that Super Bowl show was huge for me uh, because you just have to go. And it's almost like being a player. When ball's kicked, you got to go. I mean, even if you are nervous, you still got to play, right? So you got to go. When the, when the film starts rolling, you, you just got to go. You know, and I, I've watched a lot of matchup shows in this past season. A lot of things I, I still greatly need to improve on. Uh, but again, it's the reps. It's the reps of doing that. No different than being a player. You know, we talk about this all the time with quarterbacks, right? Well, well they'll, they'll do better watching the veteran. No, they won't. They need to play. <laughs> yeah. And I can get better on the sidelines. You're not. And you can get better as a, as a young player studying a veteran, like I talked about, studying Kirk and, and Marshall and their preparation. You need to see that stuff. But to really experience it, you got to go out there when things are going, you know, when things are alive, whether it's on TV or whether it's a game of football, you got to be out there and experiencing because that's how you get better. You have to make mistakes first. Sometimes people don't understand that, especially in this draft process. When we look at, uh, you know, the, our top 50 prospects this year, and they're all going to go out, they're all going to make mistakes. And people say, why, why are they drafting? Well, they, these are good players. They will be good players. They're in a totally new arena now. The game is faster. They need to go out and make mistakes first. That's the only way you're going to improve. Let me ask you this. I'd be stupid to have you on the podcast and not talk a little football and a couple of these prospects Maybe more as it relates to Buffalo, okay? You got a pair of tight ends from your from your alma mater, Iowa. Part right. of a major buzz surrounding this year's draft. T.J. Hawkinson, no offense. They're both very likely first-rounders. There's even been talk of Hawkinson going in the top 10, which is interesting to me because the Bills picked ninth, and Hawkinson's a guy that I've been seeing linked to Buffalo more and more lately. Tell Bills fans, and I guess football fans in general, a little bit about these two guys from your perspective, how their talents should translate to the NFL. Okay, yeah. Um, we just did T.J. Hawkinson in the matchup show, in our first draft show. And T.J. Hawkinson and Noah Fink, uh, different players. Both play the same position, but a different skill set, which I, I think <clears throat> is great for both of them going into their transition into the NFL. Obviously, T.J. Hawkinson right now is graded a little higher, and that's because he's more of a three-down player. And what I mean by three-down player, it's a tight end position. 
he will be nasty in the run game now. He will put you on the ground and, and keep you down there. I mean, that's what he is. He's a finisher in the run game. A guy that can play as, a, you know, your classic tight end attached to the core of the formation, very detailed route runner, has more athletic traits than I think shown as athletic testing, more speed on his film, and can also flex in the formation as a receiver. Uh, and one, when you play at the University of Iowa for Kirk Ferentz, and I, I played my final year at Iowa for Coach Ferentz, I love him. Uh, Coach Ferentz is very similar to Coach Fry in how they develop talent and how they build talent at Iowa. That tight end position at Iowa is an extension of the offensive line. They will have meetings with the offensive line, position meetings. And at Iowa, you are taught to block. Before you're taught to do anything else at Iowa, right, you are taught to block and be physical and tough in the run game. That's what TJ gives you. Noah Fan is different. Now, that doesn't mean Noah is, is not going to block. He can block for you. He's not the finisher that TJ is, but Noah Fan athletically, I mean, his measurables are off the charts. He ran a 4.5 at 250 pounds. Yeah. You look wow. at his other testing numbers, his vertical jump, his acceleration. He's the guy that can create matchups, more matchups for you in the passing game because he has the frame, the speed, the catch radius to do, to do a lot of different things for you. So really, I would think that a lot of, of all the 32 teams are all going to have different grades on who they value more. It really depends on your roster, where you need to improve, what type of system you run, and what type of coaches you have, how you're going to develop these two young players. But in my opinion, they're both first-round picks. I do believe T.J. Hawkinson will be in the top 15. And if you're asking about the Bills at number nine, he might not even be there. Okay, he could go to Jacksonville at seven, Detroit at eight. And those are real possibilities. And there could be a situation where Buffalo has to make a decision. They're at a, you know, at a slot at number nine. They're going to have first-day impact players they can draft there. Guys are going to draft. They're going to expect to start on day one. Yes, like I said, they're going to make some mistakes. That's going to make them better. And you're ta- when I talk about an impact player, some of them becomes a core player for you, whether it's an offense or defense through the first five years of that, that first round contract. And somebody can build around, but definitely TJ Hawkinson could be the pick there. And if you're a Bills fan, you do get TJ Hawkinson. I think you're going to love watching him play. You have a new post up at ESPN. You talked about it briefly describing quarterbacks fits. You have Haskins with Washington lock with Denver. Does that bode well? If a team like Buffalo, who's picking nine, may want to move down even just one spot to Denver at 10. If they really like Locke at 10, maybe they're worried about someone coming up to nine to get them. So maybe Buffalo and Denver could fall back one spot or going down to maybe Washington at 15. you think there's a decent chance that if one of those two teams like those quarterbacks that the Bills might move down one of five or six spots in this draft? They could because we always say this. You know, Mel Kuyper and Tom Shea do an excellent job for us at ESPN with our draft coverage. And when it comes to draft day, there's always movement because of the quarterback position. Uh, Where we have them graded doesn't mean that's where they're going to go. Where we have them ranked doesn't mean whether they're going to go. Draft is all built on movement and team needs and fits. So if a team needs a quarterback, they will move up. We saw with the Bears and Mitchell Trubisky. We saw with Kansas City to get Patrick Mahomes. All right? Teams move up for quarterbacks. It's never going to change. So whether you – depending on what mock you're looking at leading up to the draft, it, it, it's not dictated about what can happen on draft day. And there's a situation where a team can move up in front of Buffalo for Drew Locke, can move up in front of Buffalo for Dwayne Haskins. That could easily happen. And really, I think that's the start at number six. If the New York Giants do not take a quarterback, because they have two first-round picks, six and 17, mm-hmm. and they think they can get a quarterback at 17. That's why I had Daniel Jones from Duke going to the Giants at number 17 in my recent post. Very well. 
a team can move up and say, we want Drew Locke. We love his, his natural ability. He's got top 10 traits. He's got the movement skills, the size, the, the strongest arm in the draft. Or a team can look at Dwayne Haskins and say, more of a pocket thrower, but such an easy thrower from that pocket. A good footwork within the pocket. Can attack all three levels of the field. Need some more experience, and we understand that. We're going to give them that experience in the field, but somebody can really build around. So if you have those feelings about those quarterbacks and you need one, and you sit there and wait, so, well, he'll fall to us. It's probably not going to happen, right? Yeah. And you know general managers. They go get your guy. I think Ryan Pace showed you that a couple of years ago. They, they, they moved up, what is it, just one spot, I believe? Mm-hmm. Get Mitchell Trubisky, right? Yeah. And it cost them to move up to one spot, but they got the guy they wanted. So, yeah, that could, that could very well happen. If it doesn't, like I said, there's a lot of – and Bills can go continue to build in the offensive line. They could get a, a defensive – interior defensive tackle. They could get another pass rusher. They're in a good spot right now to land that impact player at number nine. If, you're, if you were Brandon Bean right now, and this is kind of an unfair question because you're not studying one team. You're studying on behalf of 32 teams, and you're not in their war room working with their scouts, so it's impossible for you to really, truly know, but – if you were Brandon Bean right now and you're the Buffalo Bills and you had that ninth pick, what do you think you'd be most focused on trying to get right now? Like if things fell the way you wanted them to fall, who would you be looking to draft with that ninth pick as of right now? As of right now, well, you know, I still I, I still believe it's a line of scrimmage game. I do. Uh, whether you're talking offense or defense. That's why I mentioned TJ Hawkins because I think he's an extension of the offensive line. I would look at Hawkinson there and – uh, you know, Ed Oliver, the defensive tackle from Houston, could be there at number nine. Okay. And you could look at offensive tackle or slash offensive guard. I, I, Jonah Williams from Alabama is one of my favorite players to watch on film. Yeah. And, you know, I, I trust Nick Saban in the way they develop players in Alabama. I think they're, that shows in the field year in and year out that they play for national titles. They win SEC titles. And Jonah Williams, he's got the footwork to play tackle. I think he'd be a really good offensive tackle. I think he's gonna, he could be an all-pro guard, too, as well. And that's similar to when you know, Washington drafted Brandon Sheriff out of Iowa a couple of years back. He was, you know, all-American left tackle. They bump him inside to right guard. He's playing very productive football for them. So that's also position versatility. But what really stands out to me is if I'm a coach and I'm watching Jonah Williams film, I want him in the offensive line. Room. His play demeanor stands out to me. Above all the traits and skill sets that we will talk about for the next week, 24 hours a day, the number one thing for me, and this is taking a coaching perspective, is I want guys that compete and guys that finish and guys that play extremely hard. And to me, that's Jonah Williams. On top of the traits he has, on top of playing and developing under Nick Saban, on top of playing for big games in college, that matters also. He played the national championship stage, and he's won national championships. All right, last draft question here, and then we're going to move on and start to wind down a little bit. Give me a guy or two that you really like that isn't regarded as a first-rounder, or at least certainly not a top-ten pick. What are two guys that, from your studies that you really like that maybe fans and other people in the media aren't really talking about too much right now? Well, you know, I'll, I'll stick in the SEC. I'm doing the SEC Network next week. I'm doing their coverage for the drafts. I'm doing a draft show. Uh on Wednesday down in Charlotte, that's where the studio is, and I'm going to be on the desk Thursday and Friday night for the first two days of the draft. So I've been really studying SEC tape. And one guy to me is Damian Harris, the running back from Alabama. I have, him in, a, Josh, I have him in a Reels mock draft that I just did. Now I'm really interested in hearing this. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, Josh Jacobs is obviously – well, not obviously, but in my opinion, is the, the top-rated running back in this class. Mm-hmm. 
who's Damian Harris's teammate, has explosive traits that jump cut abilities, finisher, catch the ball in the backfield. He's a three down back in the NFL. Damian Harris, I think, sometimes is forgot about in this discussion because there is so much intention on Josh Jacobs at the top of this class. They played together. But Damian Harris is the number one running back in the country coming out of high school. Uh, I think he has potential to be a three-down player in the NFL because he doesn't have a ton of pass game production, but when he does, he's a natural catcher. I mean, he doesn't fight the football when he throws it. And you can see on film, some running backs, they fight that thing. Like he's got boxing gloves on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's got soft, natural hands. He's a decisive downhill runner. He's got enough finishing power, enough ability to slide or have that extra wiggle at the point of attack. Isn't a burner, you know, he's a four or five guy. But I think he has the exact traits you want in the National Football League. He has a pro running style. And really those traits are very similar to what Mark Ingram had at Alabama. Now, I think obviously Ingram was graded higher than Damian Harris coming out, and that's why Ingram, I think, when the you know, back half of the first round to the Saints. But Damian Harris, I mean, those are classic Alabama traits. That's what you expect to see from an Alabama running back. And to me, that stuff sells in the pros. If I'm a running back coach in the pros, that's what I want my players. And the number one thing is he will block and pass protection. He will challenge you. He will challenge second-level blitzers, square up, and put his pads on. You can trust him. And you know with running backs, the number one reason they don't make it on the field in the NFL is they can't protect your quarterback. If he gets quarterback hit, and I'm your coach, son. I can't put you out there, man. <laughs> hey, look how much money we're paying that guy. Come on, man. I can put you out there. So, uh, for me, he checks all the boxes. And, again, he doesn't have the same explosive or elite traits that Josh Jacobs might have, but he's a solid football player, can have a great NFL career, and do a lot of different things for you, whether it's early first and second down or catching the ball in third down or creating a matchup, producing in the screen game, running between the tackles and running on the edge. Good football player. The other one that I really like <clears throat> – is Nasser Adderley, the safety from Delaware, okay? Now, the tape, you're looking at FCS tape, so you're not seeing Adderley against you know, Notre Dame, Clemson. You're not seeing Alabama. You're not seeing those games. Mm-hmm. But, again, we're looking at traits now. And for me, he's a former corner. He's got the footwork to come down and cover. He's got range in the post. He's got great ball skills at the point of attack. And he's not uh, – I mean, he's not Steve Atwater when he hits, okay? I'm not going to say that by any means. But he will, he's got good, clean footwork when he's reading his run pass keys, and he comes down the hill and he, he will fill the alley, and he will tackle. He will wrap up and tackle. And, again, from a coaching perspective, you don't care about big hits. It doesn't matter. Can you get the guy on the ground so you go to the next play? That's all I care about, right? And he can do that for you. So that's probably another day-two guy. Damian Harris is a day-two guy. That aren't going to get the attention, all the attention in the mock drafts leading up to you know, the opening night of the draft next Thursday, but really good football players that have a lot of tools that you can work with and develop. I really think Damian Harris would be a good fit in Buffalo coming in behind guys mm-hmm. like Frank Gore and LaShawn McCoy. I want to ask you just one or two Bills questions here. What were your thoughts on Josh Allen coming into the league last year as a rookie and have they changed at all after his rookie year? Well, I had questions about him coming in just like everyone else because you look at his, his Wyoming film and there was flashes of being a top five pick and there was other situations where he said, well, he needs to correct that. You're going to have to coach that out of him. Um, and that's understandable. I mean, he has all the natural tools you would want at the quarterback position. What he needs to be is more consistent with his accuracy and he will learn that stuff. I think one of my favorite games watching my film last year was a game down in Miami. There's some throws in that game that are big time throws. There's some plays he made with his feet that you can't teach. Those are natural gifts in terms of his athletic traits. 
And I think you'll see as he starts to progress more as a quarterback that his running numbers will start to drop a little bit because he will hang in the pocket more. He will go to his second and third reads more. And again, that's part of the process. The best thing for him last year, Patrick, was the play. Was yeah. the play. You're on a team that wasn't going to the playoffs. That was a perfect time to get him on the field. The perfect time. And he had an opportunity to play. And all that film, and now going into his second season, he has all that film to study on himself, on his divisional opponents, on Bill Belichick. You know, he, he has all that film now. That's going to make him a better player. And I like what they did this offseason in adding some talent around him, especially in terms of pass catchers. You know, that's what they did. I mean, John Brown is perfect for that offense. You saw what Foster did last year at the end of the year, mm-hmm. right? Deep, deep, deep fade balls down the middle of the field, deep corner routes. John Brown can run past a lot of people in this league. And he's a good route runner, too. You know, a lot of times with speed guys, whether it's John Brown, Deshaun Jackson, Terry Glenn, we just talk about, all oh, they're so fast they get down the field. I, I understand that. That does impact things. But John Brown's a good route runner, too. He's going to create that cushion or that space because defensive backs have to get out of their back that'll turn and run to stay on top to prevent the deep ball. So he's have room underneath where he can snap back downhill on a curl route, a comeback, break inside on a square. Now, he's not a guy that's going to go up and work the middle of the field all day. We understand that. But pairing him with Josh Allen, now you start thinking about their offense moving forward. Okay, can they be a run-based offense that can take their shots of a play action? Sure, sure. Can they go to some spread looks and run some RPOs? Yeah, you can do that with Josh Allen. There's no doubt about that because of his athletic traits. You know, adding Cole Beasley. Well, why would you add a Cole Beasley? Well, this is why. Because you already have the deep ball speed now. You have Foster. You got John Brown. Well, Cole Beasley is a guy who can work inside the numbers. And you always need that guy. We always The way I, I look at football and the way I coach in high school is you have to win critical downs. Okay, the other stuff matters. First and second, we all that matters. But where's the ball going to go in third and two to six? Now you have a guy in Cole Beasley who's a very detail-oriented route runner who can create separation and win in the middle of the field, whether it's breaking inside or breaking outside towards the numbers. That's a much more easier throw than throwing the deep comeback to John Brown on third and two to six, right? Sure. So you want a guy who works in the middle of the field and say, look, I'm going to throw you an option route. I'm going to throw you a shallow crosser. You catch the ball and get past, get past the sticks. Now we can start over again. Now we can continue driving. So you got your pl- explosive play threats over the top. You got a guy like Cole Beasley who can work in the middle of the field. You are helping your quarterback by creating more production-based opportunities. And that's what football is. And I don't believe Josh Allen had that last year. I don't. And now you're adding that to it. Now you're working on the offensive line. You're rebuilding that front. You're doing all these things to put him in a more productive situation. That's smart roster management, and that's also smart coaching. Do you believe between adding guys like Beasley and Brown, Mitch Morse on the offensive line, some other offensive linemen, do you think the team has done enough and they've improved enough, at least on paper right now, with still the draft to come? Do you think they have what it takes to compete for a playoff spot next season, or do you think it's going to take another year? I don't know that yet. You know, the schedule release went, just went out last night. And, you know, we always look at that. But, you know, I'd like to see what they do with the draft still. I'd like to see what they do with the draft still. And I'd like to see Josh Allen to those first four games of the season. I think then you can make it, you know, form a more true opinion about which direction they're in. Based on what they did in the offseason, like I said, they're doing the right things to put this team in posi- position to compete for a playoff spot and really to compete for the division. That's the first thing. You win your division, you get an automatic automatic ticket to the dance. Everyone knows that. So beating your division opponents is the most vital thing. You got a team in Miami that's totally rebuilding. You have a team in New York that's got a new head coach, right? And 
everyone knows the New England Patriots. The New England Patriots still have holes to fill in that roster. They still do. Leaning into the draft and throughout the, the summer and the training camp, they still have spots to fill. So will they have a chance to compete? I think they'll have a chance to compete. Does that mean they make the playoffs right now? I don't know that yet because I want to see Josh in his first four games. I think after those first four games, you get a much better feel for where he is, is at in terms of his learning process and his growth and position from his rookie year to year two. But I've always said this, Patrick, the biggest jump you make at any stage in your career is from year one to year two. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're a long snapper or a quarterback or a defensive back like I was. You're much more comfortable. You, you go to the offseason. Now, think about this for Josh Allen. What did he do last offseason? He probably threw it so his arm almost fell off, right? Private workouts, pro days, combines, trained to run a 40, trained to run the three-cone drill in the short setup. <clears throat> and going into your rookie year, you're not ready for professional football totally because you spent your entire offseason training for tests. You were training in terms of overall functional strength to be ready to play 16 games plus four preseason games in the National Football League. Now Josh has that. Josh also has the film we talked about. Josh has spent the entire offseason process, OTAs, minicamps, preparing for his divisional opponents and working the corrections that are on film that people are going to attack. Okay, that's what they're going to do. Everyone else has film on Josh Allen, too. Right. You don't think Bill Belichick has watched it? Of course he has. Belichick probably already has a game plan for Josh Allen. But what is the jump Josh makes to counter that? And I think he will make a jump because, again, that's when you make your most significant jump. It's from your rookie season to your second season. You're much more pro-ready. I mean, when I went to the Rams facility, Patrick, I didn't even know where the bathroom was. I, mean, I, I don't know where the bathroom was, and I'm starting to train to be a football player. You know what I mean? So right. I, used to, I used to get lost coming home from practice the first two weeks because I don't remember how to, you know, <clears throat> exactly how to get home to my apartment. <laughs> Man, you know, just simple things like that. You know, where do you go to eat? What do you wear on the road trips? I have no idea. You know, you know what? You know, just simple things like that take time to adjust to being a professional athlete, and especially for a guy like Josh Allen, who was a top ten pick and had to do all that extra work as a top ten pick in terms of visits, private workouts, all that stuff's gone. Now it's just Josh Allen, the professional quarterback, and I'm excited to see where he goes. Last question here, Matt. Then I'm going to let you go. You're a defensive backs coach at IC Catholic at Elmhurst, a team that's won three straight state championships what's that experience been like for you coaching winning three straight titles i mean dude that's really impressive man wow well i appreciate it. that's because of our players that's because of our players. i'm telling we have uh, players with high character discipline accountability and toughness and that's the best way to put it but i'll say this i got into coaching for selfish reasons okay you know i miss football and not you know when you write about football and discuss it, it, it that i'll always love that but i miss the the extra competitive side Okay. I missed it. I missed being around the game, being on the grass or now the turf. No one has grass anymore, but you know, being around, being around football and, and being around people with the same like-minded environment. So I got in it for selfish reasons. I also got in it because I never won a championship in anything, not in high school, college, or the pros. I am close. I mean, I played in some really good pro teams, you know, especially in green Bay and St. Louis. We had a team in Washington went to the playoffs too, but never got to that stage. Right. I wanted a championship more than anything. I mean, I really did. That, that bothered me. It bothered me like crazy. I wanted to be a part of a championship squad. And I didn't know that going in, uh, in coaching at IC. They were coming off a four and five season and missed the playoffs. But <clears throat> this, this class came in. This class just graduated now. And, and this, this group of seniors, <clears throat> you talk about special traits. 
uh, not just as football players, but uh, what they do in the classroom, what they do in our school community, how they carry themselves. Those kids are awesome leaders, and that's why we won. I mean, the coaching is one thing, and I, I love coaching. But like I said, I got into it for selfish reasons, but then you fall in love with the idea of coaching. The relationships you build with these kids, with your coaching staff, with their families, their parents that come to the game, you get involved in everything. There are, most of our players are multiple sport athletes, and that, that's the biggest thing for me. I'm a huge believer in being a multiple sport guy. I was a three-sport guy in high school, and I love that about our players. That when football season's over, they go to basketball and wrestling and hockey. Then they go on the track, baseball, lacrosse. They do it all. And I, I think that senior class started that for us at IC. And they, they left with three rings, three rings. Every one of those young, young men have three state championship rings. That's pretty special. It's something they'll remember for the rest of their life. And these kids will be friends for the rest of their lives because of the competitive environment they were in together. And I was, you know, so honored to be a part of that. And it's really helped me too, Patrick, as a writer and an analyst. I never played the spread off. Never, I never ran an RPO. You know, mm-hmm. I told you I was running the beer. I was running the beer in high school. Yeah. Threw the ball like five, five times a game. So. Yeah. You know, that for me to teach RPOs, and I, I work with both sides of the ball. You know, I'm a defensive back coach, but, you know, our school is 315 students. So those young men are playing sometimes, a couple of them are three-way players. They play offensive defense and special teams. They yeah. never take a rest. Wow. So the same guys you coach in the secondary, well, our strong safety was also our starting quarterback. You know, so you're teaching both sides of the ball. And that's how we practice. That's how we compete. But Bill Kreps is our head coach. I can't say enough about Bill. He gave me the opportunity. He's an outstanding coach. Outstanding coach. Outstanding manager of people as well. The way he builds relationships, the way he maintains relationships. But working with those uh, those young men, and the greatest thing for me is when you get to talk to them. Now, the first class I work with, you know, the, these guys are, you know, about ready to get out of college. And to be able to talk to them now, going into their adult lives and for them to still call you coach. And for me, that is one outside of being called father. That's the most endearing term you can have. It's for someone to call you coach. And yeah. if someone to ask you about stuff outside of football, because I talk about everything with my players. It's a, it's an open channel of communication. Yeah. Something to discuss, we'll discuss it as a defensive back group. It can be anything. And I tell people all the time, and you remember this high school is not easy. It's not, it's awkward. High school is awkward to me. Yeah. It was for me. I mean, you're growing up. You don't really know anything. You're trying new things. Socially, it's hard. So to be able to help them, help them navigate that as well, that has really been beneficial to me. It's, been, it's had a huge impact in my life. It really has. And I love it. I love everything about it. Yeah, that's great stuff. It really is. All right, everyone. Be sure to check out Matt on Twitter at MattBowen41. Of course, see him on ESPN. Thanks a lot for doing this, Matt. Very informative stuff, man. I really appreciate you. I appreciate you coming on and doing this podcast. Well, Patrick, I enjoyed it. Again, I appreciate the opportunity. You do great work, and just happy I can get on with you. Thank you so much. Hi, my name is Matt Cundell, and this portion of the Moranalytics podcast is powered by my company, MattCundellVoice.com. If you need a voice for your company videos, narration, e-learning, Maybe it's your radio or TV ad, or even your phone system. Consider using my voice to tell your story. I'm not only a sponsor of this podcast, I'm also a regular listener, wrestling fan, and longtime supporter of the Buffalo Bills. For more, check out mattcundlevoice.com or click on the link in the show notes. 
Okay, Joe, aka Joe from New York City, aka Buffalo Wins on Twitter, aka the dude who gives his old Buffalo Bills jerseys to Joe B and Matt Fairburn on the Bills B podcast for giveaways instead of to me, even though he's a regular on this podcast. What's going on, man? Oh, uh, look at how you know salty. You know, uh, full disclosure. And I told you this before, but I'll tell everyone. I had promised them, I, I you know, uh, Joe B and Fairburn jerseys probably about a year or so ago. I was like, because they were giving away stuff. And I was like, hey, I got to empty my closet. So I had that promised way before you had your podcast <laughs> there, buddy. So I'm just letting you know that. Uh, I did when I gave it to them, did think, because when I gave it to them, it was around Christmas. I was like, oh, you know, I probably should give these to Pat. But Pat didn't invite me to go get wings with him one time when he was five minutes away from me. So I was kind of like, hey, you know what? Fuck him. I don't need to give him anything. So there you go. So. You know, and to be fair, I'm obviously I'm joking around there, but no, you're not. You it does. Well, it, it gives it does give me an idea that I actually should start having some form of giveaways, maybe for new subscribers or some kind of contest on this podcast as well. It kind of inspires me to. To come up with something and, and get some prizes. I know some guys, some t-shirt guys and stuff like that. Maybe get some things going in the future. I've been lazy and I haven't really thought on it. So your gesture to the Bills B podcast and neglecting me kind of, um, it's going to get me going on doing some stuff for fans in the future. Like I said, you should you should have had me for wings because I had the jerseys there in Buffalo when uh. you were there. And, you know, maybe I would have been like, hey, you know what? Here's a peerless price jersey for you, buddy. There you go. <laughs> what jerseys did you give them, or is that a secret? Um, I don't know if it's a secret, but I gave them I gave them a pretty good collection. I don't want to I don't want to because I told them that they should pro- probably give it away more of a. I suggested giving them away for like a trivia element of it, like this player's jer- like this player played at such and such, you know, and right. had this game, and then you guess like I could suggest that to them. So I don't know if they were going to do that or not. So, but it's a, it's it's a it's I can tell you that it's they're they're players from like basically the all the all drought team. I the would all say. drought, you know, yeah. So there's nothing there's nothing really from the '90s there, except one player is from like the late '90s, probably that uh, is a part of that. But, but for the most part, they're all guys. I, I, the first jersey I got was like 2004 ish around. So like yeah, so it's definitely like the all drought team. But like I said, one player did play. In the '90s, you know that I have, but uh, for the most part, like I said, it's the, the drought, cool. the, the drought cast, I guess. Of that, uh, that's cool. I'm just busting on you anyway. I mean, yeah, obviously, right, I love sure. Joe and Matt. I love their podcast. It's a good idea. Like I said, it'll give me something to think about for the future. Anyway, let's get into a couple topics today. Here, the Bills schedule came out on Wednesday night. I'm not going to read the entire schedule. By now, everybody knows it, but there's a couple things obviously that stand out. I'm going to get your take on the schedule. I, I already I, forgot it, to be honest with you. <laughs> did you? Well, I, I, I'll tell you this much. I, I love the schedule. But let's just talk about a couple of the points. The Bills are playing on Thanksgiving. I did not I see that, that coming at all. Week 13. I feel like the league's taking a chance a little bit. The Bills, by the way, have not played on Thanksgiving since 1994. Hmm. I feel like the league's kind of taking a chance, don't you, a little bit? I mean, again, this is week 13. The Bills will have a bye. So they'll have 11 games coming in. No, this team has not been very good over the years, and having a national game at four thirty on Thanksgiving Day with a team that potentially, if things go wrong, could be like four and seven. You feel like the league's rolling the dice a little bit, giving Buffalo a Thanksgiving date? No, not at all. I mean, the Thanksgiving days—they've—they've they've been kind of 
I mean, it's always been Detroit and Dallas, and they throw anyone on those games. Like Miami has played Dallas at least like three times over the three or four times, like over the last twenty years on Thanksgiving. Yeah, I can remember. And Miami's nowhere near like they're on the same par as what the Bills have been for like the last twenty years or so. You know what I mean? Like they're not they're not world beaters over here. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's that big of a like uh, oh my god this is a great opportunity for them like it's it's cool I guess because we have we haven't do had you that like since, it like, that's fine I mean it's I mean yeah look I it, I look at it this way this is my point of view with these, the primetime schedules I look at it from my point of view of when I can actually watch the games from my TV in Queens so that's the only reason why I look at the schedule like okay hey I got the, when am I going to be able to watch the Bills and Jets because it's going to be on regular cable here when am I going to watch the Giants Bills you know, when it's on regular cable here and the primetime game. So I could sit at my home and not have to go to a bar and spend money or have to find an illegal feed to watch from my couch. You know, that's what I care about. So like, yeah, it's fine. It's Thanksgiving. I guess we can, you can watch it there. It's a little bit different. Uh, but I don't think it's, it's it, playing on. I know Thanksgiving can be spent spun as like, this is prestigious. Cause that those games, those games have been around almost as I think even longer than Monday night football has been around. Like they've been around forever, but mm-hmm. it's always, it's always whoever they can, they could throw d- in, into the Dallas Detroit mix. And then they, they expanded it about, I think what it was like t- 10 years ago where they had the night game where they do with like two random teams. Right. So, you know, it's, it's fine. I mean, I, I still think it's more like I, I, I think if you're and I'm I'm that guy who gets outraged about primetime games. But like, I think it says a lot that they're the only team in the NFL that does not have a primetime game. And, you know, I know it could it could get spun like, well, this is better than a primetime game. I mean, fine, I guess. So, you know, it's different. We yeah. haven't had that yet. So but still, it's kind of the, 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 the national audience does not view the bills very well. I mean, in terms of not, not the audience, but like the networks, don't. the market size isn't very good. They don't have too many game breakers on the team as it begins right. as it states right now. That's so, kind of my point. Yeah, you're you you're hundred percent right. It's I'm always hundred percent right. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. They're not it's just surprising to me because I don't I'm not gonna fact check this, but I feel like more people will probably watch the Dallas Cowboys every year on Thanksgiving than watch any Monday night football game. Sure. I don't have those numbers in front of me, but I'm going to assume that's the case. And you're right. In terms yeah, of the schedule, when it comes out, some people make it a bigger deal than what it is. And I think some people look at the schedule for different reasons. Like in my case, I live down here in Florida now. So the first thing I do is I go right to finding out when they play at Miami. You know, I went to, right. two, two years ago. It was, I went to the Miami game. It was in October last year. I didn't because I think it was on new year's Eve that they played Miami or two years ago when they made the playoffs. Right. And this year they're playing on my, it's November 17th. I'm excited about that because there's a good chance that the, the way it works out with the schedule, I'll be able to go in terms of no primetime games, dude, maybe this is a hot take. I don't know. I love it. I hate the bills playing on primetime games. It throws everything off for me. I just, I hate everything about it. If I had my way, the bills would play 16 weeks at one o'clock every single year. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've kind of flipped a little bit. Like, I do like primetime games. Like it is kind of cool to like hang out, watch it from like, again, cause it's on national TV so I can watch it. So I'm happy that I don't have to go to a bar. Um, you do kind of, it, it is nice to have like a pregame show, like dedicated to that game specifically, you know, like if you're watching ESPN Monday night countdown, or whatever the hell that show is, or, yeah. or if there's a Sunday night game and it does, people do watch it. And, uh, 
that's kind of cool, I guess. But then over the years, people have been so outraged on Twitter about, oh, we should get games and we lack of respect. And, you know, it's like, whatever. Like, I, I can, then it, it's kind of soured on me where I don't even care anymore to that point because it's been kind of like boy that cries wolf about complaining all the time. And, and then people not understanding that, like, hey, it's about markets. It's about market size and it's about the team. Like, you know, you're, you're six and 10. And you're, you're it's a small market. Like it's not gonna it's not gonna register with the network heads. You know, if 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 it's if you're Green Bay and you got Aaron Rodgers, then that's a different story. But when here, you know, if Josh Allen becomes really good, then yeah, they should get games. But even it's it's t- it's weird with them. Like even even like in the like the late nineties when they were like respectable with Flutie, I think they only had like maybe like one or two like Monday night Monday night games that were that like three year span when like Flutie was like a top a top guy like in terms of panage like if you were like hey there's flutie oh i want to i want to watch him if you weren't a bills fan you know then but they they just don't register on the national scope in terms of tv stuff and i think it was it's going to take a lot for them to get at least like two or three primetime games like they they will have to finish like 12 and 4 11 and 5 in like a really good 11 and 5 like there's like star power on that team i mean they were they were nine and seven last year, or they made the playoffs. that one, you know, in two the two years ago, and they had one primetime game the next year. Ten, you know, that's it. Ten teams have five primetime playoff or not playoff games. Ten teams have five primetime games this year, and like you said, the Bills are the only one who don't have one. Personally, that doesn't bother me. When a schedule comes out, you know the teams that they're playing ahead of time. So there's a case to be made. Well, people make too much of a deal of a schedule. Now, see, I completely disagree with that. I think the schedule release is a very big part of a season for a team. Do you think it's a big deal when the schedule comes out? I think the schedule matters a lot. Even if you know the teams that you're going to be playing, you don't know when you're going to be playing them. And I think that matters an awful lot. What do you think about that? Uh, Want me to give you an example? Go ahead. I'll give you an example. This year, the early part of the schedule, I love it. They start off with two road games against the Jets and Giants. So they're knocking two road games off the schedule right away. And then a home opener against Cincy. Those are three teams right away that I feel like those teams, at least on paper, I mean, teams surprise you every year, but those aren't contenders right now. They have a chance to start off the season good, whereas last year, if you remember at this time, if we were taping this podcast, we'd be talking about they opened up at Baltimore, they were home against the Chargers, at Minnesota, which they actually ended up winning that game, and then at Green Bay. Everyone kept talking about that murderous start of a schedule where they could be 0-4 or 1-5 or something like that, and the season's over. Sure. So the schedule comes out, and I think they got some favorable early matchups this year, which it could go the other way. And I prefer it to go easy early on so that you could get some momentum going. Let's just say, hypothetically right now, okay, they got their schedule for 2019, and they open up at Dallas, and then they're at home against New England in Week 2, and then they're at Pittsburgh Week 3. It's like, bam, really, really easy. They could be 0-3, and they're a bad game away from the season being over. Essentially, the playoff race anyway, like, what, a quarter into the season? Something like that? Yeah, but you're still playing those teams. It's not like it's a lethal draw where you don't know where you're not playing. We yeah. know those teams are playing. So what's the, what's the difference between those games? What if the Jets and Giants is in October? I think or, the difference they, like, is you can your season can end before it even gets started. If you're playing all I the best know. teams too early on, or if you're playing on the road all the time early in the season against the best teams— and you're one and three, one and four, your season's basically over at that point. I'd rather build up a good record early I and have guess. winnable games. There's lots of other things too. But then you could you could collapse though, then. Like then you could you have could. Like, a shitty schedule at the end. So it's like great. September was awesome. We're excited. And then they collapse. Like they did like an oh 
what was it, 08 and then two, in 2012 or whatever the hell. Yeah, 2008. Year was. Wasn't that the year they were 4-0 in 2008? And then they just fell, yeah, they and they finished had a last really in their easy, division. And if you remember, they had a really easy schedule to start that year. And that probably was part of the reason why they started 4-0. And then they started having to play the division. And the division that year was really good where, if I remember correctly, the Jets, Dolphins, and Patriots were like both – all three teams were like 10-6, and 11-5, yeah. and five, like around that world. And once they started playing those teams, they got swept from that whole year. So – I don't know. I, I don't think the schedule thing is that interesting. I mean, I guess I, I, I would find interest in the primetime games because it's like, OK, Sunday night, Monday night. See if you see if you have anything because people do watch those. Uh, well, the schedule, they could end up still playing a primetime game, by the way, at the end of the season, the second yeah. last week at New England. That could be flexed. They're one of five games for three spots on the NFL Network. So that is potentially that could be flexed to a night game. That's just, I, you know what I remember every year when the schedule comes out, I always find things that I bitch about and I'm really having a hard time doing that. This time around, they're not facing any team that's coming off a bye. They're one of nine teams that had that luxury. The Patriots have to do it three times as I'm going through my notes here. Like I said, I like the early part of the schedule. I love that they don't have three December home games this year. I absolutely hate having all those late December games, especially if they're Why not. Why do you hate having those games? Because, they're the, because I've been trained over the last 18 years, minus 2017, that they're out of it. And those games mean nothing. Ah, and see. tickets are going right. for $5 and half the stadium's empty in December because they're out of it and it's 20 degrees or, or colder. I like well, the schedule this year. don't be out of it then. Be this, good. Well, I, like, I know. This year they have they have three straight October home games. I like that a lot. And I also like, and Sal Capaccio pointed this out, after that MetLife Stadium game week two, when they're at the Giants, they only got one road game over the course of 55 days. That, yeah. Which is different. I don't know. I, I just like everything about this schedule. I like the way it's set up. Again, not playing teams that are coming off buys. That always seems to be the case. I remember it seemed like every year, like if playing the Patriots wasn't hard enough, we'd always be playing them when they were coming off their buy. So none of that this year. I just, I, I like everything about the schedule. Huh. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I guess. I guess I, I don't, I didn't really comb it as well as I, I, Ask me, fuck it. I just don't comb it. Like, I don't care. Like, I look at the primetime games. <laughs> that's understandable. And that's it. That's under, That's how I work it. Like, I'm like, oh, hey, let me look at the primetime games to figure out if I can watch, if, when I can watch them from my, you know, from my couch. That's kind of it. I mean, you could, you could hide, the, you're going to, the chickens are going to come home to roost. Okay. No matter if you play the Giants, the Jets, the first two weeks or the last two weeks, like you're going to play them. So, you know, I don't know. I just, I just don't, if I was a, someone that went to the games and I was someone that goes away to the games, like, hey, I want to go plan a trip to Tennessee or wherever, you know, Dallas to go watch these games. That's when I would care. But I don't do any of those, really. You know, I, I don't really go to – maybe I'll go to one game. I don't know. I'm usually touch and go. It just depends. But, like, that's, that's I guess, would, would, would be what I would care, you know, in terms of, like, where I could go to these games, the trip and, you know, going away games. And I don't do any of that. So I'm kind of just ambivalent about the whole thing. It, I admit it. It could be overanalyzing when you look at you the schedule. I do because I do think I think you could have competitive advantages if a schedule works out your way. For an example, playing the Jets in Week One, Sam Darnold. I'd rather play him in Week One than Week Ten for the first time because he's probably going to be better in Week Ten than he's going to be in Week One. It's just the way I think. But admittedly, I am overanalyzing. You are right. You're eventually going to have to play the teams one way or the other. So whether you start one and three or three and one, it matters how you are come Week Seventeen at the end of the. I would think I would think someone like Donald would be better week one because at least do have like there's not there's not going to be that much game footage of him like this year of his second year there's going to be none it's going to be the preseason and you you know sure. whereas week ten you'll have more game footage to look at those guys 
You know, isn't it always like it's like the Patriots thing when the Bills would pay the Patriots when the when the first go around was if I, if I remember the first go around was always close, but then the second round, the second go around, the Pats would obliterate the Bills. Yeah, and and, and it was it was kind of like the narrative was well, it Belichick set up has to be that way line. again this year too. That's the one thing. If I guess if I had one nitpick about the schedule, I hate that we always play the Patriots either the last week or the second last week because. You might be in a situation where you really need to win both those games to get into the playoffs, and you're playing at New England Week 16. It seems like that's the case every year. We'll beat them. Beat them then. Beat them then, fucking bitches. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Sorry, I was supposed to swear by Yeah, go ahead. Keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So let's hit on WWE for a few here. You had the Superstars shake up this week. Bunch of names, switch shows. I'm not going to name all of them, but the highlights going to Raw, AJ Styles, The Miz, The Usos, Naomi, Andretti, I guess officially, Lacey Evans, Alistair Black, Ricochet. They've been bouncing around on both shows. They're on Raw now. Samoa Joe is going to be there. He was sick last week. And then going over to SmackDown, you got Roman Reigns, Finn Balor, Bailey, Amber Moon, Lars Sullivan, Kerry Sane debuted for SmackDown. Does it do anything for you? Are you excited about it? Does it move the needle for you? No, not at all. It's just, uh, I don't know. Everything leading up to this, like the last month and a half, they've had guys on each other's brands a few times. And then they had like the NXT guys debut, like, you know, in January and then the early part of February. So it just, it, 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 it didn't feel fresh and having like, oh, this new talent's going over to these rosters. It's just, right now the rosters overall just don't feel special. They feel like mid card mid-card hell right now like who are the main guys that got switched like finn balor samoa joe switch you know roman switches with aj styles those are the four guys that really are on the top level of your card basically that they're going to give a damn about if that makes sense everyone else is interchangeable like I, I, like i give a shit if uh what the hell Ch- chad gable whatever his name is uh or whatever the guy is it was chad gable the yeah, guy who's with bobby root Yep. Chad Gable, sorry. I, I get him and Jason Jordan, where, who I don't even know what the hell happened to Jason Jordan. He's been gone forever. But Gable, you know, he goes, he's an example. Oh, he goes to SmackDown. Big deal. Like, you know, okay, great. He's there. What's he going to do? He's going to be a utility guy. And that's what it is right now. They have a lot of mid-card guides there. And, you know, I, I like Asuka and uh, and Carrie saying, like, being a tag team, that's that's kind of fun, even though I, I really hate the Iconics. I think they're, the Iconics never should have got that belt. Those belts that early, and right now you've you've the whole thing with Becky Lynch or, or not Becky Lynch with Sasha Banks with her being on sabbatical right now because she may be done with the company, and now Bailey, you you broke that team up, which was stupid. Like you could have had that a legit run with the tag team titles with those girls, and like having them have really good feuds with different people, and now it's it's a mess. Like they 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 are on the seat of their pants booking. It feels like where they have no idea. It's baptism by fire, man, where they just there's no they're gorilla booking as it's as it feels like. And even even the even like the those the, the two shows, like I remember like the, uh, you know, I wasn't a kid, but you know, I remember in my twenties watching the draft shows. The draft shows were awesome. Like you had like the draft, you had that little cool graphic that used to be like, Okay, who's yeah. next? And they would like they did like the switch, they would roll through the roster and then it would just pick someone and then boom, the guy comes out. Yeah, like the GM podiums, like it felt special. Like this People just show up out of nowhere. Like, there's no rhyme or reason. And then, like, you have to, like, f- figure out, like, who who joined where again? It's just, I don't know. It's just, and it's one of Vince's stupid things. Like, he calls it the superstar shakeup instead of, like, the draft. 
Like, call it the draft, dude. Like, what the hell's a shake? Yeah, I agree. And it's it, like, that, there's no it's motivation. Dumb. Like, why do these guys? It's everyone's excited to be switching brands. That's like, well, maybe they're not excited. Maybe they don't want to be there. I'd love to have angles where they're pissed off that somebody went from SmackDown to Raw and stuff like that. I think it's more of a short term thing. In terms of Raw, quickly here, the one thing I am looking forward to is a potential down the road AJ Styles, Seth Rollins program. That would be cool to see. That would be cool. On the SmackDown side, I don't really get Roman Reigns being there, except for maybe because of the Fox thing that's coming up later in the year, and he's a a big name and a face. I think they'll do something with him to pass the time short term, and then maybe uh, Lars Sullivan comes SummerSlam or something like that. That could be interesting, having those two go at it around that time. But overall, meh. I'll say this already interrupts, but like the Roman to SmackDown doesn't bode well for Kofi. And I say that in a remember when like CM Punk was the world champion. Yep, I know where but you're it was going. really John Cena's. Yep. It was John Cena was the main event. That's what's going to happen with Smack with him. Roman's going to be the guy. They'll give Kofi the title for a little while. He'll have it, but he'll be he'll be like the second guy on the card and he'll wrestle mid card people probably. Whereas. Roman's going to wrestle the Lars. You're right. Like Lars Sullivan's definitely going to hit up soon or they're going to have law or he may feud with uh, Elias, you know, to start off, but it's, it's always, he's going to be their episode. I mean, at the end of the show, like Todd Phillips, he basically was like the future of the brand, the future of WWE Roman reigns. Like, okay, dude, like he doesn't even have the championship. Like, can you like comment down? I think Roman right now, he's in a weird spot right now where, I think fans are like scared to boo, don't want to boo him anymore because they feel kind of bad. I mean, there's still booze oh, there, but it's not like it, it's not what it was before. Right. But now you're having ambivalence where people don't know what to do. They're like, oh yeah, he comes out. Okay, it's Roman. I don't want to boo because he had leukemia, and I don't want to cheer because I don't care. You know what I mean? Like that's where he's at right now. He's either going to be the champion before, or he's going to win the WWE Championship probably on the first night. That SmackDown airs on Fox. I'd be willing to guarantee one or the other. Yeah, uh, we'll see what happens when the Fox when the Fox show comes in. Uh, that's another thing, dude. Like, what are they going to do? Are they going to like merge the rosters, or I don't know. Or are they going to like, you know, give them half-ass, or maybe they're going to put more, you know, NXT stars, or maybe they put Brock on there. Where is that's the other thing, dude? There's so many guys who are like injured right now. Like Daniel Bryan's hurt, and they've been really coy about what's up with him. Uh, Brock is, I don't know what happened to Brock. He went to, he went on his plane to Vegas and he hasn't been seen yet. And Ronda Rousey's having kids somewhere. Like right. there's like guys like who are just not got to develop new stars. Now's power. the time. Now's the time, man. Alistair Black, wow. Ricochet, guys like that. It's uh, Lars Sullivan. It's time to start making those NXT people in the stars. They have to. It's the only way it's going to yeah. work. I don't, they don't, their booking sometimes is weird to me. And we'll talk Fake about this her. more the next time, Fair. but like, before we got out of here, I'd be remiss if I didn't spend a couple minutes talking about Game of Thrones with you. You're a huge Game of Thrones guy. Season premiere was on last Sunday. Did it live up to your expectations? And based on what you saw in the premiere, what's your gut telling you how you think things are going to start to play out going forward? Well, did it live up to my expectations? Yeah, I guess so. I, I know some people may have been a little disappointed, but I've I've seen Thrones enough to know, like, Every premiere for every season is always like a, a plate, like a table setter. Like this is what it's a reset and a table setter. Like this is what's going to happen. I feel like next week is going to be the same thing where it's going to be just more scenes, not enough, not a lot, not a lot of casualties. Like the third episode, it's going to be where everyone is going to going to die basically. But uh, I thought it was fine. Like some, the reunion scenes were good. Uh, Jon Snow, Arya reuniting. It's the first time they saw each other in like 
since like the second episode of the series. I liked it. <laughs> that was great. Uh, Her and the Hound was good. The tension between like Sansa and Daenerys was good. Uh, if there were things like I didn't really care for, I you know I like the, I like the theme. I've I really was hoping more out of the Theon rescuing his sister storyline. I mean, literally, it was just like, oh hey, we invaded the ship, three people, and now uh, we we we, yeah, we got you. you. It was like it was twenty seconds long. I was like, oh okay, I guess I guess that's it. I I was I was thinking it was going to be some like a lot. It was going to be an arc that took or took out a few other episodes, but I guess they want Theon to go back to Winterfell. So. My prediction is this for like the whole up until like that third episode where it's supposed to be the war uh, with the with the uh, White Walkers. I think there's going to be more turmoil. And I, I predict that the Northerners are going to like leave Winterfell and it's just going to be like the Unsullied Dursthraki and like some of the Winterfell people. Because I think they're all it's all adding up where Jamie's going to come in. They're not going to be happy to see him. They're going to be like, why are you here? We hate you, blah, blah, blah. And then you have Theon coming in because he wants to help. And Theon's the guy who who took Winterfell before. You know what I mean? And they're going to be like, why is this guy here? And they're all going to be like, the hell with this, we're out. And then it's going to be like them being with uh, just just da- Daenerys' troops, I feel. I feel people are going to eventually leave Winterfell, maybe. Like, there's going to be some bad blood. And you saw it in the first episode. Like, you know, uh, Lady Mormont, you know, she wasn't happy. She's like, you were the king and like you come back here and now you're just a lord. And then you bring this girl here. So I, I, I feel like that's going to happen the next episode where there's going to be people who are going to leave and say the hell with this. We're taking our our people back to to wherever their houses are at. Did anything from this premiere change your thought on how the show is going to ultimately end and who might sit on the throne and who's going to be alive or dead when it's all said and done? Did the premiere move the needle for you one way or the other and change your mind on anything? Uh. Gosh, not really. I still, what the, I, I forgot what I said last week. I was sick, but I, I like decided to say, I, th- I think Sansa and Tyrion are going to be on the throne. Like somehow, I think what's going to happen is this. I think everyone is going to basically die at Winterfell. Like Winterfell is going to get destroyed. You said Jamie was going to die last week. You said Jamie was going to die in Brienne's arms. Yes, that I said that. Yes, that I could see that still happening. Uh, but maybe it won't. Who knows at this point? But I think overall in totality, I think. Winterfell's going to fall. I think a handful of those characters, whether it's Tyrion, whether it's Sansa and maybe maybe Daenerys or whoever, like a few of those people are going to escape and they're going to all go like go down to King's Landing. And I think they're going to have to team up with Cersei and maybe they're going to fight the White Walkers as they're coming down to go kill him. Because one thing I said this, I said this on Twitter. If you notice the new open, which is which is phenomenal with the, the new uh, they totally did a new open for the show the bottom tiles the ground floor when it starts are turning into ice and it's and i feel like they did that they did a new open because that ice is going to keep going where it's going to hit winterfell and it's going to turn winterfell into ice in that open that's why i think they did the new open so that ice was going to come all the way down and creep all the way down to the map that's why i only showed like two places and they show like the basements of those places and i think the ice is going to eventually go into the basements of King's Landing and the basements of Winterfell when the when you saw that opening of the show because there was ice, you know, the floor was turning to ice. So I think, I definitely think that's going to happen in terms of, uh, you know, I I think it's going to be a, a very sad ending the third episode when when the war, you know, for the dawn or whatever the hell it's called happens. Last question here: Give me three people 
main characters, and I'm sure there's going to be more than three when it's all said and done. But give me three people right now that you feel pretty confident in that they're going to die. They're going to perish. Are we talking for the whole season or just next just episode? The rest, no, the, the rest, rest of the season. When when the, what is it, six, uh, six episodes? Yeah. So when that finale airs and it's all said and done, give me three guys who are alive right now or women right now that are alive as of right now that will not be when the season's over. Grey Worm, uh, Jorah Mormont, he's going to die. And uh, who the hell? I guess, I, I guess I'll stick with Jamie, Jamie Lannister. Like those three are going to die. All right, I got three separate ones. And by the way, we could both be right because there's going to be a lot of people freaking dying at the end here. Sure. I'm going to say Theon's going to die. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that. Uh, yeah. He's going to die because he's going to come up and have some redemption. He's kind of redeemed himself for what he did earlier in the series. I think he's going to die saving someone else. I think Arya's going to die. And oh, That's going to be terrible. It is going to be terrible. And here's, here's the hot take. I, Cersei's going to die, but I don't. that's not so much a hot take. I think she's going to die by suicide. That's my hot take, all right? The wall's going to be closing in on her at the very end, and there's no way out, and I think that she's going to die. I think she's going to kill herself, and I think she's going to jump out of a window just like her youngest son did. That's my hot take, mm. man. That's my new that's prediction. A, that's, a pretty hot, that's a pretty hot take. Uh, maybe. I, I don't see her killing herself. She's too vain and too full of herself to be. She'll be like, let's come and get me like to the White Walkers. Let's I think fight. she's going to realize that she's going to die anyway because of Mm. you know all the omens and stuff like that i i, I don't know it's just it, it's a gut feeling man it's the that's the beauty of the show and so many things could happen we could yeah. both be right all six people oh, I'll, say this, I'll say this real quick man and then I'll, and then i'll get to my finisher which i'm still deciding on um we talked before about how would we prefer like to binge episodes or, or wait one week at a time and mm-hmm. i was like the wake when we i i changed my mind like after that thrones episode ended i was like i need to watch the next episode now <laughs> so that's how me and my, my wife were like, we had the same me the discussion we're having right now i literally within minutes had that discussion with my wife because we both agreed we like waiting all week but when that shit is over man you want to watch the next one yeah there's no question yeah. i'm gonna watch especially all six for a episodes show you love yeah especially for a show you love like if, if it's a, if it's like a show like i don't know like whatever like insert another show that i probably like that i'm like oh i like the show like i like narcos it's it's a good show i could probably wait on narcos you know what i mean like it's a good show i like it but like this it's like no i need that so you don't have the willpower you wouldn't be able to if this was available if all six episodes were available right now you probably would have watched them all by now yeah i'll fucking i would have watched them twice by now probably (laughs) yes i love that show that much all right man it is that time what do you got what's your finisher for the week Oh God, I don't even know. Uh, you know what? I, I, before this call we had, I was taking care of my goldfish. Man, I, I decided to get my dad got me goldfish like back in November. And what the hell's the point of them? They die. <laughs> like I, I, I've had like the, I've had four goldfish since <laughs> November, and, they, and I have a really nice tank. It's like you know your, your your typical like six. I don't know what the hell the gallons go, but you know it's your typical tank. I got I got like a thirty dollar filter because I was thinking. I had the cheap one before and then the first two fish died and then like they died pretty quickly, like within a month and a half. So I'm like, let me get, let me get like a really good filter. The fish people at the store are like, Oh, you know what? You should change your water once a week. All right. I changed my water once a week. And then one, and then one of the fish dies on, on Monday morning, like right after game of Thrones. So I was like bummed out. And then my other fish right now, he's, he's like the bigger of the goldfish. He, I think he's dying too, because he's been like sleeping Basically. So what the fuck is the point of goldfish, really? I mean, I mean they all die. And uh, <laughs> if anyone wants to, like, send me some, like, 
you know, tips on Twitter, please do, because I, you know, I'm sick of spending $4 on goldfish, okay, for them to die and for my electric bill to be more expensive because of the stupid filter. All right, that is going to do it for this episode. Big thank you again, and I mean big thank you again. Matt Bowen from ESPN. That was fantastic. I'll tell you what, I've done, what, 112? 112 of these episodes of the Moranalytics podcast. That was, far and away, one of my favorite interviews to date. Great storyteller, Matt, is. Man, I love that. Really good stuff. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks as well to my man, Joe, the running with Joe. That's always fun. Not even going to stay mad at him because he gives other podcasts football jerseys to give away and not this one. It's all right, man. I got you. Coming up next week, yo, it's draft week. You know I'm going to have a lot of Buffalo Bills NFL draft stuff. Chris Trapasso is going to be on. I'm sure I'm going to have other guests as well. Me and Aaron Quinn will definitely do our final Buffalo Bills four-round mock draft. Really looking forward to doing that. And by the way, if you have not yet done it already, please go ahead and subscribe to this podcast. You subscribe, new episodes will automatically get sent right to your phone, to your computer, whatever it is that you use. Doesn't matter. It happens within just seconds of the release of the episode. Seconds. That is always the benefit of being a subscriber. You're going to get to hear it before anyone else does. You can rate and review the show. That stuff always helps. That's pretty cool. Catch us on Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere that you can find podcasts. Also, go on YouTube. We got a Moranalytics podcast YouTube page. Go up on there. Find us. Click subscribe. Hit that little bell next to it so you get notifications. I've been taking highlight clips from recent episodes, putting them on there. I'm going to start producing some exclusive audio content. I might even get some videos down the road, things like that. So Moranalytics podcast page on YouTube. Go and find that. Last but not least, as I'm sitting here begging you to do all this shit, follow me on Twitter at Pat Moran Tweets. If you want to hit the like button on the Moranalytics podcast Facebook page, I ain't going to be mad at you about that either. Thank you. Seriously, I, I that word is such a loose word, but it means a lot. I do. I thank you very, very much for listening and downloading this podcast. It means the world to me. Thank you. Have a good weekend. I have another show on Tuesday. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.